Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Falconer, and today I'm joined by Merritt Baer, field CISO of Lacework. And we'll be talking about the security motivations for moving to the cloud, pros and cons, and what to think about when you're navigating that transition. Merritt, welcome to the show. Thank you, excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. Thanks so much for doing this. Why don't we start with some basics? Who are you, what do you do, and how'd you get to where you are today? Yeah, sounds good. Um, so first of all, I'm coming in today from Denver. So I am on Apache, Ute, Cheyenne, Comanche, and Arapaho land, among others. Um, I am um, at Lacework now, as you mentioned. I've been here for a little over a month. I um, work closely with our customer CISOs. As folks may know, Lacework is a cloud security company. So we are helping folks to challenge or confront challenges that are um, inherent to the fact of cloud uh, in a lot of ways, as we will get into. Um, cloud is this really beautiful kind of luxury uh, as a security practitioner to be able to reason about the things you're doing, to be able to use infrastructure as code and security as code. But in a lot of ways, it's also like AWS tells you, you know, here, you're in Home Depot, go find the lumber aisle and the nails and the roofing and like build yourself a house. Why can't you? Um, and it's true, like there's all this incredible tooling and, and you know, the platform itself is great. And of course, like we work with other platforms too, with GCP and Azure. Anytime folks are moving to the cloud, they're getting a lot of um, elasticity and, and capability but they also need to keep in mind the shared responsibility model. And so there's a lot that falls on the customer side. And when I was at AWS, um, I, I came from the office of the CISO there. I was essentially part of a team that is the deputy CISO. Um, when I was there, one of the pain points that I heard from customers was like, you know, it feels dizzying and also, um, can you do it for me? Uh, and so, you know, one of the reasons that I now work with customer CISOs at Lacework is to try to be responsive to that desire to just have better signal to noise to really kind of constrain what they're getting um, in terms of their own uh, ability to take action and to meaningfully get insights since you're getting so much data now with cloud. You know, everything is an API call. It ends up being be a, a challenge in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like your uh, analogy about like the the Home Depot essentially just yeah, when you when you're trying to navigate these public cloud systems like AWS, you know, GCP, whatever it is, there's just so much stuff to like navigate. The raw materials are there, but it's a lot to try to take in. I remember during my time at Google uh, hearing a story from one of the you know senior directors of, of engineering and cloud there being at Google I.O. and someone coming up to him and saying like, hey, I was like really interested in deploying to Google Cloud and learning more about it. I went to the Google Cloud website and I was just like, paralyzed by the amount of stuff that was there and I didn't know what to do. So I just went to Heroku and did like a git push. Um, so that's kind of uh, the world that you, you end up having to try to navigate sometimes. And then when you're talking about this from a security perspective, that can be a real challenge because you can step on a lot of landmines as you're trying to navigate and put together all this, you know, various pieces of services to create your infrastructure. Yeah, there's a lot in there that we can and I think will unpack today. But essentially, I think that's exactly right. Like the folks, well, first of all, I hope that folks do move to cloud because of security reasons. But I'm also realistic that often it is more a business, you know, innovation push 
that gets folks moving to cloud, but like no one's gonna do anything unless they believe it can be secure. Every industry has considerations around regulatory, around practical, around you know consumer and downstream security and, and what folks are sort of um, getting from them when it comes to security. It's part of your core deliverable these days. And so I think ultimately, you know, it's not just about the security services. It's about the way you're building. It's about how your, you know, your team is able to um, do more with less and and really make it meaningful as you do that move and as you produce whatever your core business is. Right. It's really kind of letting the security folks. I was going to say get out of the way, but you know, letting them be enablers for the business, letting you whatever your industry is, if you're in oil and gas or pharma or healthcare, automotive, you know, having your security team be part of those core deliverables. And that's the dream, right? And that's also kind of built into the way that cloud is is proposed because you've built in permissions, you've built in an internet facing endpoint, or you haven't, you know, like all these decisions that you're making as you go are part of your security, uh, you know, apparatus. At the same time, you can templatize, you can find paved, you know, like these are, these are opportunities, not just risks. Yeah, I think that's that's a good place to start. So you mentioned this idea that you know a lot of times people are moving for, to cloud for sort of business reasons. Maybe it's the you know cost savings or, or whatever that might be. But you know what the what are the sort of the motivations from a security perspective? Because I feel like sometimes in the security and privacy space, I've seen people sometimes there's this perspective that essentially like on-prem is somehow more secure than the cloud. And, you know, I've always made the argument that with the cloud, there's like uh, so much uh, complexity can actually be abstracted away, like updates to systems, having security by default. You can even leverage tools like Druva for backup and recovery. So security can be easier than trying to do everything yourself. What are your thoughts on that? And why is there sort of this perception around what it means from a security perspective to be on cloud? Yeah, so I mean, I think that, as I said, I actually think it is a legitimate business reason to move to cloud for security purposes. I mean, like, because it can yield security gains. And part of that is that cloud takes off your hands a whole set of traditional security responsibilities. I mean, it used to be uh, that it was like someone's job to walk around and make sure all your VMs were plugged in or to, you know, decide how much you needed to provision in 10 years and get that budget today and build data centers, literally. Um, and that would be geographically constrained to wherever you had built them. You know, like there's all these ways in which I think both the security from a physical kind of like you know, is this staying up and highly available, but also, you know, hardware and other considerations that are on the cloud provider side, you know, that you no longer have to worry about. The beauty of cloud is that you deal with abstractions now. So you're able to spin up, you know, architectures, you're able to spin up environments, you're able to have immutable backups, as you point to, and like, you know, come back to known good states and use things like, you know, templatization and golden armies and um, to know that you um, can come back to a, a prescribed, you know, or a paved road. Um, but I think that at the same time, as you allude to, you know, there's uh, primarily, in my experience, configuration management is hard for folks to deal with. And then alert fatigue. So we're talking about, you know, of course, 
Lacework is one of the folks that like inherently believes in this power of big data and how it's going to allow folks to identify previously unseen threats because you're able to correlate, you know, data points together. And there are so many ways in which it's a powerful enabler. Well, at the same time, like you're talking about alert fatigue a lot of times, you know, like what you really want are actionable um, alerts and what you really want are then the ability to take action on it. I mean, like to remediate with a simple, uh, you know, button click or uh, command line uh, action. There's all these ways in which cloud gives you these tools, but then makes you do it right. And I think that's the rub, right? And that's the part where it's a continuous kind of um, improvement cycle, even for folks who are doing it well. Yeah, and I think you know one of the things you touched on there was this idea that if you are essentially running your own data centers, then the not only do you need to think about like where do we need to be in five or ten years in terms of scale, and we need to like you know make all those purchasing decisions around hardware plus headcount to like resource it and staff it, but also. If you are a company that is global or aspiring to be global now in the sort of highly regulated world that we live in, you're going to butt up into certain data residency requirements in certain parts of the world. And then what are you going to do? Go and create essentially your own data center that's running in Germany and Singapore and Canada and all these different places to service that or leverage essentially cloud systems that already have, you know, regionalized data centers available in those places to allow you to scale essentially globally much, much faster and without like all the overhead of building and deploying your own data center and running it yourself. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, not only can you spin up and spin down, but like your cloud provider is handling the patching and the updates and the, you know, uh, provisioning and the HVAC and the guards and gates, it is uh, a really laborious thing to do the physical infrastructure side. And so the ability to abstract away from that is both taking this entire sort of category of threats, you know, for lack of a better word, but like of responsibilities, let's say, and, and the possibility of doing them imperfectly um, off your plate. And then it also, yeah, it gives you this ability to spin up and down effortlessly. Um, it gives you the ability to reason about what you've done rather than like going around and having someone check to see how many racks you have. You can do describe calls, right? You can know what you've done. You can send canaries through in a um, you know, abstracted sense to make sure that some calls that you expect to fail are failing and some that you expect to go through always go through. Like there's this way in which you're interacting with your infrastructure in a much more um, elegant way that uh, allows you, as you pointed out, to kind of escape some of that manual drudgery um, and to be very nimble about, yeah, data localization and make a lot of um you know, intelligent decisions about where and how you have points of presence and what you're going to do in what parts of the world and and to test it out and be elastic and revise your business plan and then have your infrastructure just keep up with you seamlessly, right? But, but again, all of these come with decisions. You have to architect for it. You have to make some judgment calls and then you have to make sure that you've executed according to what you think you've done. And so having that visibility and the ability to execute on it is, I think, part of the continuing challenge, even though there's a lot of opportunity there, it still has to look like hard work sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you touched on a few different sort of trade-offs that companies are making if they you know, make the decision to essentially refuse the cloud around like the cost involved, the maintenance, the, the scale issues they might run into. And I think another trade-off that they 
might run into too is that since so much of the world feels like it's shifting essentially to be a cloud world, as you think about you know hiring security professionals or even other parts of your 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 business, you know from a recruiting aspect, you might run into challenges because the new crop of people who are security professionals or you know engineering professionals are you know basically born in the cloud and that's probably what they're used to and what they're looking for, and then you might actually be missing some of that expertise. It's like if you refuse to move to higher level languages back in and in, in, in stuck in like assembly or Fortran or something like that, eventually you're 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 gonna age out the workforce that's available to like work within those programming paradigms. Yeah, I mean not only uh is it true that sort of like the, the world is changing and growing up, it is also true that uh, the inherent idea that you move toward more automation. And I mean that literally, you know, that your security team, for example, is codifying away security tickets as they get them. Um, you know, that you're able to build more and more um, automation into the way that you do business because you don't have to make every uh, manual judgment call and then execution. Like you also, as a nice side benefit, as you point out, will probably retain your workforce better because people don't like doing manual horrible processes day after day that don't require any, you know, creativity or vision or kind of like uh, innovation from a human. And I think it's almost like Betty for Dan with the um, idea that folks who are stuck in jobs that could be done by, you know, a robot vacuum, like we should let the robots do what they can do. And we should let humans do what, you know, be be working on higher order um, issues, which is where we thrive and where we feel more fulfilled and where we get to also, you know, do more, as you point out, it's like professional development anyway, if you're upskilling your team, they're gonna be better off. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, I think we're, you know, you and I and, uh, in, in, you know, large parts of the world are probably aligned on this idea that, uh, you know, like moving to cloud has uh, lots of different benefits for a business, even beyond essentially the, the business benefits, but also from a security perspective. But obviously, it's not all just a perfect rosy picture. So what are some of the new challenges that companies face once they've made the choice to move cloud from uh, uh, or made the choice to move to the cloud from a security perspective that maybe they didn't face when they were sort of managing their own uh, data centers? Yeah, well, for one, which you kind of allude to here, it really is not a given that, well, one, you have to do the move. Um, and that in itself takes, you know, time and effort and chutzpah. Um, like there's going to be some stuff that is, Harrier and that, you know, you realize that these systems were interconnected. You get, you know, when I was talking to customer CISOs, I would have folks who were like, don't touch that. I don't know what it's connected to. Um, and while that's not a good long-term strategy, you know, it does mean that when you do something like a migration, especially if you're moving in a cloud native way, instead of just a straight up lift and shift, um, you know, you're going to have the need to build in considerations around how you do that meaningfully. You know, do you move one workload or a hundred? And in the meantime, and the answer is like, start somewhere. Um, but in the meantime, you also, you know, are going to be most likely if you are doing a move and you're not born in the cloud, you're going to have multi-environment. And so I think, you know, having, this is again, one reason why I think, um, I, I believe in Laceworks product is that you need a single platform to you know both prevent and react, um, getting more context, but across different um, 
platforms or different uh, environments because, you know, all of the cloud native uh, visibility tools obviously are looking at their own, you know, cloud trails looking at AWS API calls. Um, so the ability to correlate data and then to extract from that priorities, insights, actions, you know, those are the kinds of things that still present challenges even after you have made a an affirmative decision to move to cloud, you have to manage that process. And of course, you know, as you then go do these dev cycles, right, you're going to feel a lot of the good stuff, but you're also going to feel some of the pain. Like, you know, it used to be that the security team would like put a physical appliance in front of your stuff and you'd kind of assume that you were more secure. You know, like everything goes over the open internet now with no inherent security assurances. I mean, it's protected by SIG before. Um, but if you create an internet facing endpoint, like unless you have the ability to alert on it. And of course, there are plenty of mechanisms in uh, cloud native and also in other platforms. But like, unless you're actually taking care with the way you architect, you can still, as you kind of alluded to, you can have like, you can be walking around with foot guns, you know? Um, and so I think, and you can spin them up right away and use your real production data if you don't have the controls around those being possibilities for folks on your team. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned this idea of, uh, you know, you might have to essentially um, manage things across multiple environments. Are you talking about the situation where someone's migrating to the cloud? So they both have a cloud environment and then they also have like an on-prem environment and they have to manage security across both those two environments. Oh, it's a choose your own adventure here. It could be, I mean, most customers that I talk to are multi-environment in some sense. So they might be, like you said, sort of hybrid between on-prem and cloud. Um, sometimes and often they are multi-cloud and on-prem, or you know they say that they have their own private cloud and they are on public cloud. You know, like there are lots of ways in which folks um, have a mix, and then add in OT and you know some of the physical considerations, which are really still prevalent in manufacturing and. Um, healthcare and other fields, um, almost unavoidable, basically. Um, and and those are things that we are working on getting more cloudy, but that, you know, folks are dealing with security challenges. A big um, characteristic, I think, for anyone in this field is just like empathy, because you can come in and have all these great ideas. And the person who is there doing it is like, yeah, Sean, that's a great idea. Let me tell you what happened when we tried that last year. You know, um, the execution itself just runs, you know, into I think wanting to get the right visibility to get, and by right I mean good visibility. There's no like perfect gospel here, but getting usable and well filtered visibility so that you're getting, um, you know, alerts that are actionable and relevant, so that your security team now has the muscle group to go do it. You know, these are all things that the tools and the technologies help you to do, but ultimately you have to go do. Mm -hmm. And then for companies that are, you know, either, you know, born in the cloud or moving to the cloud, is the skill set from a security perspective different in the cloud that you should be looking to from like a talent perspective in the, in the way that you might form a team different than that of, of uh, people essentially managing this in an on-prem environment? I think they are different sort of personalities and skill sets, which isn't to say that 
traditional security folks can't become cloud security folks. Obviously, there are lots who do and having a background in, you know, something traditional security, whether it's networking or, you know, edge protection or whatever your kind of flavor of security uh, on-prem might look like as you translate it over. It's got huge benefits if you have that experience. But yeah, I actually think, you know, today's security person is a dev, right? Because there's someone who wants to codify away problems so that you spend less time doing those manual processes. And there's someone who wants to be building. So they are building, you know, as a security team, you're building templates and ensuring that folks use most of the time, use paved roads that you have set up so that the exceptions are, you know, knowable and limited. Um, you are, you know, minimizing snowflake environments. You're, well, that means that you are create you, the security team, are creating these um, templatized environments and they're going to look different for your R&D team than they are for your HR team um, in terms of, you know, the tooling that you want to give them access to in terms of the sensitivity of the data that they're dealing with. Um, but all of these, I mean, I think the thing that stays constant is that good security professionals, hopefully, um, are creative. You know, they're thinking, how how could this break? Um, how will other folks sort of try to use this that I should anticipate? And this might be unintended use by your own employees, or it might be, you know, but insecure uh, practices, or it might be, you know, a threat actor. Um, so thinking sort of being creative and not just locking it down because ultimately things that are locked down don't do very much. Um, and so what you want to have is stuff that works, but also, you know, stays secure. And that's the hard part is, is making the secure thing to do the easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, you mentioned things like infrastructure as code, but how are some of the like cloud native sort of security tools perhaps different than what you might be used to in a traditional environment? I mean, there's a lot of ways in which, uh, well, the way that you're going to interact with environments from, you know, your identity and how you are getting authorization into environments and spinning things up and spinning them down, um, but also the ways in which you know, you can templatize so that you are, as we, you know, when I'm talking about infrastructure as code, I'm talking about things like CloudFormation or Terraform, um, you know, where you are by nature of writing these, and these are written in JSON, which is like fairly human readable, but it'll say, you know, spin up this whatever compute function or this um, database or the storage. And then it inherently requires that you, to do this, you have to have the identity and access management permissions. You then are putting restrictions on that um, in terms of access and whether it faces the internet or what other thing, you know, whether the resources it has access to and what it's doing. You know, the, these are all um, builder considerations there are also security considerations. And so there are ways in which as we do this, you know, when I'm talking about infrastructure as code, I'm talking about the ability to take those kinds of templates. And um, and by the way, there's lots of um, existing best practices out there on GitHub and other repositories. It doesn't mean you should take those as gospel, but like you can start with known um, configurations that folks have, uh, you know, open sourced 
and be able to then refine them. But the point is now, now your decisions have security implications. Well, you know, we can call that security as code because you're implementing that codified template. You've got security decisions baked in there. Um, and so when I'm talking about minimizing those snowflakes, I'm talking about making sure that folks aren't just like going without guardrails. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned uh, the best practices. A AWS also, and I imagine other you know sort of public cloud providers have reference architectures as well for like various types of configurations that also go into like what is the sort of best practices from a security perspective recommended by AWS or whoever the the cloud provider that you're you're using. Exactly. Yeah. No need to reinvent the wheel. Um, you'll want to. You can and should customize. You know, but you will want to just take what exists in terms of sort of the slimmest logic that you can find, which are often templates that folks have kind of refined over time. And then, because the, the danger with having really long templates is that you don't see everything in there. Computers can reason about it. But um, but yeah, if you get some of the um, reference architectures, you'll have some of what folks are currently using that seem to be functional and secure. And that kind of, um, you know, do do a better job over time of making sure that any permissioning is deliberate and so on. You, it's not, like I said, it's not to say that you lock everything down. Obviously, it has to work. Um, but it, it does mean that you're going to want to um, look at what you're working with and, and be just cognizant and, um, and take advantage of those pattern-based and template-based and known good um, opportunities. Hey there, Sean here. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Partially Redacted. If so, please subscribe so you can always check out the latest episode and help others find the show by leaving a rating and review. Final thing before I get you back to the interview. If you're interested in privacy and security, have a challenge or issue you want to discuss, or want to share your expertise, please join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com slash community. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, so one of the things that we talked about, you know, at the very beginning was essentially like how big cloud infrastructure, public cloud has gotten with all the tooling available and the services. And it gets, you know, it makes it can make things hard to manage, hard to like kind of understand what's going on. You know, there's hundreds of AWS services. I was actually talking the other day about how I think AWS has like five different NoSQL databases <laughs> available. It's just like, you know, which one should I choose? So, but from a manager, from a security perspective, like how do like security professionals, how should they be thinking about like managing this at scale and sort of staying on top of all the like options and like services that are available? You know, I get the question a lot of like, how do you stay up with AWS services? And uh, I, I don't think there's like a one perfect answer. I do all the stuff that other folks do. You know, I listen to the AWS podcast and read blog posts. And, and the same is true for GCP and Azure. You know, there's always roadmap stuff to acquaint yourself with. But I think overall, um, you know, having arms around what you've done. So in AWS, this is organizations, for example, where you've, you've got the ability to like delegate down, um, you know, services that they will use. So you could say, folks in this org don't need access to SageMaker. They just don't need to be spending on managed AIML. It's not part of their job duties. 
Um, let's just take that off the table. Meanwhile, we're going to put CloudTrail always on because we want to catch every API call and you know, S3 block public access because they don't need to be creating internet facing resources. Um, you know, so doing it at the organizational level in terms of delegating permissions and other considerations down, you can do it with service catalog and other things, but orgs made it a lot simpler. Um, and the other thing is to uh, take advantage of some of the you know, platform visibility. So the ability to have, you know, uh, signals and, and context in your cloud security platform, um, you know, the ability to basically take what you are building, take what you are then seeing, you know, so you have your kind of pre, because um, obviously with cloud, you can reason about the stuff you're going to do. So even without sending a packet over the network, you could know um, if there are, you know, internet facing endpoints or if uh, your permissions can be escalated or what have you. Um, and so, you know, reasoning about what you're about to deploy, making sure that you're kind of containing and, um, and using a kind of funnel toward production in terms of your uh, restrictiveness and permissiveness tolerance. Uh, you know, obviously your production environments should be the most um, guarded or, you know, uh, known, um, the, the least risky. Um, and then being a, a shop that continuously improves. A lot of times in security teams, we have weekly metrics meetings where we'll be like, why did it take us three hours to notice this? And even if there was no downstream impact, the point is like, let's get better at, you know, the alerting. Why, where, where was the threshold that we had set and why didn't, you know, this hit it? Um, just getting better over time. And again, these are just kind of muscle groups that everyone works at, but those muscle groups look different in the cloud for sure. And they're a little bit more um, ephemeral or whatever, abstracted because you're, you, you like go into your computer and write in, it'll be at, you know, 6,000 drop calls per second or whatever your threshold is that you're choosing rather than something in sort of old world where it was like, well, you know, our, that's just where the router stopped performing <laughs> or whatever it was that were kind of like these hard limits that, uh, that you were constrained by as a security team. So I think there's also just room to, room to do it really well and also room to just continuously tune that feels a little bit, um, like a Sisyphean task, you know, but, but hopefully folks get better at, at it at, all over time and take the lessons that everyone's learning. And, you know, it's one reason why I have this job is to help impart some of these kinds of best practices that we hope no one has to learn the hard way or fewer and fewer folks. So you mentioned the idea of essentially making sure that um, you know someone doesn't uh, you know open an S3 bucket to the world or locking down you know access to SageMaker or you know other types of services. Are there you know essentially cloud native security tools that will automatically monitor my services, make sure that I'm following best practices, so that I don't do you know something accidental like open up an S3 bucket to the world? Yeah. So for example, with S3, there's lots of uh, red flags that throw. Well, first of all, there we have, I should stop saying we, AWS has made it harder and harder over time um, in response to customer, you know, empathy to create an open S3 bucket. Like you, to create one, you have to click through a bunch of, yes, I know what I'm doing. 
um, in the first place. And uh, yes, it, it shows up pretty bold in your console when you do. Um, but also as you, um, you know, plucked from my previous uh, kind of uh, illusion, there are ways to do the controls around that at the organizational level, like literally in organizations. Um, and then there are, yeah, there are, you asked about native tools. There are some, there's a trusted advisor that gives you some, you know, flags, some uh, configuration issues. There is, let's see, guard duty that will show you IDS, IVS. So it does um, VPC flow log anomalies. Um, there are, you know, edge services like uh, Shield and Shield Advanced that help look for botnets and proxies. All of these can then pipe into Security Hub. This is obviously AWS specific, so like, but I know they're comparable in Azure and GCP. There are cloud native tools. The feedback I get from customers is that they feel kind of piecemeal. So you gotta look over here for your edge threats. You gotta look over here for your, you know, configuration management. You gotta look over here for something else. And then it kind of feels like you don't know where you know, where to look and how they interact with each other. And I think that's not entirely surprising or, you know, all bad because basically all of these, you know, at, at Microsoft and at Google and at AWS, the way that they built those services, I mean, those are tech companies and they will, the way they built those services was through agile sprints using cloud infrastructure. So they had a heads down six week or six month or whatever it was horizon um, where they kept iterating and they did daily standups and they delivered a product that, you know, is, you know, Amazon refers to these two pizza teams. They want them to be small and fast and siloed. But what that means on the customer side is that you have to stitch them together. And so I think that's why you know, folks like Lacework come into play because it just helps it be this unified pane of glass. I know the pane of glass is a overused phrase, but it helps it be a source of truth that it, that weaves together some of those underlying um, services and allows you to get more context and feel like you have arms around a broader um, picture and, and you don't have to just piece it together yourself. Mm -hmm. And then what about in the, you know, in terms of threat actors. So, you know, people, you know, basically bad actors are always adapting to, you know, what's going on in, in the cloud native world to exploit, exploit, you know, various cloud vulnerabilities. Well, what are some of the emerging security threats in the cloud landscape and, you know, how can organizations kind of defend against them? So on the one hand, there's tons of interesting stuff here and I, could, you know, you and I could geek out over a copy or a beer about all the like bad stuff that we see from, you know, ransomware and uh, hardware based attacks, uh, you know, and like side channels and um, whatever. Uh, now, I think a lot of the Vegas um, conferences had, you know, Black Hat and DEF CON had folks playing around with AIML models and other ways that, you know, like that folks may be inherently relying on things that are insecure and that, or that, you know, uh, bad actors can get in and augment. Um, but I guess in general, my personal view is not to focus on the threats, but to focus on building your house, right? And it doesn't mean that you don't look at what's out there. Of course, like when you're deciding how to build your house, you're like, well, am I in a floodplain? You know, do I expect hailstorms? 
Um, am I in the inner city? And I think folks might break a, you know, my front door if it's made of all glass, even if it is locked. You know, you're going to take into account sort of like the context of your security posture and of your industry and your threat models, right? I mean, I think it's always wise to do some conscious thinking through if you're in let's say something that's really heavy in R&D, like pharma or, um, you know, uh, high tech, you're going to know that your IP is a huge target for um, APT groups, for example. Um, so like knowing what folks are after is helpful as you create your threat models. That being said, you know, you know how you protect against ransomware by doing it right the whole way. Like you've got to have credentials, right? You've got to have redundancy. You've got to have backups, but you life cycle them. So they're not sitting around and can be exfilled. You got to, you know, like you do it um, throughout. And I think to the extent that it's not, I'm, I'm definitely not a, the house or the sky is like falling type of security person. When I sit on panels and folks are like, what keeps you up at night? It's like, my toddler, you know, like if I am the last line of defense for an enterprise, we have bigger problems. We need to build, you know, those muscle groups and mechanisms and behaviors and be complemented by all the tooling advances, the ability to know what you know, the ability to, you know, as a security team to get better over time, to take action on the alerts and not just, um, you know, hope for the best. Obviously with security, like good intentions are not enough. So I think the the flavor of the current attacks will change over time. But I would also say that like the vast majority of attacks out there are not zero days. It's all knowable stuff. So it's really just a matter of doing it. And I don't say that flippantly. It's still hard work to go do it all. But it's a matter of doing the stuff that you know you need to be doing. And it is a little bit of a cliche now, but I would say, you know, Obviously, hygiene is a big part of it, making sure you have, you know, your identity and your MFA and things like that um, working in a way that is up to current, you know, SSO, everything, federate everything, everything you can, making sure your root credentials are locked down, um, don't run workloads on root, things that folks, you know, know. But I would also say, like, you're going to have some business risk. And I think it's wise for a CISO to, like, go to your CEO and say, as it stands right now, um, here's our sort of risk profile. Here is our likelihood of outage and then cost of it. Here is our likelihood of having, you know, sensitive data, you know, and, and where you got it from. Obviously, these aren't perfect mathematical calculations, but they are something you can approximate pretty closely, especially if you are in cloud where there's a lot of SLAs, for example, around durability and availability that you can um, plot this out from a business risk perspective and make it part of a, a determination that includes you, but is also brought to the business itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, so a lot to unpack there. Well, first of all, uh, I have two toddlers at home, so I have deep empathy for your uh, sleep situation. <laughs> Yeah, that's what keeps you up. You yeah, know. exactly. Uh, yeah, the, the the real world uh, keeps me up. So, but uh, I, I think you may. I really like your you know analogy or your sort of phrasing around you know you have to build your house right, and uh, it's not just a, a, about good intentions and in context is 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 important, right? Like the, essentially, like if you're in a highly regulated industry, then your sort of threat vectors might be different than 
uh, if you're doing something that is, um, I, I don't know, like a consumer facing product that maybe is not so you know sensitive or whatever it might be, just like, you know, I grew up in Eastern Canada, the way that you build a house there, now I live in California, is significantly different than California because California worried about like fires um, and uh, droughts. In Canada, you're worried about snow and, uh, you know, sweet and, and, and ice and things like that. So the way that you build those houses is completely different. So you kind of need to understand the landscape and the, the potential threats. And um, I also think that when it comes to a lot of, um, you know, uh, attacks that happen, whether it's, you know, it leads to a data breach or some other type of, uh, you know, ransomware attack. A lot of times the people who are attacking these different companies, they're looking for sort of the easy way in. You know, they're not necessarily choosing specific targets and then going like really hard on that target. They're looking for like known exploits, things where people have made mistakes like running workloads at, at root, things that they can easily compromise. So a lot of it is like, are do you have that those basics or like the sort of the baseline things set up correctly? And then are you staying proactive and updating and sort of staying up to date on those things so that you don't let someone slip through the back door because you left it wide open? Yeah, exactly. I think uh, the sort of like, you don't have to be faster than the bear analogy comes into play. It is opportunistic and a significant chunk. Uh, I haven't looked up what the ratio is today, but the last I looked, it was something like 80% of ransomware victims get re-ransomed. And the reason is that the attackers go through the same path. So you pay it off and you get your data unencrypted, but you haven't solved the problem. Um, so, you know, like same thing happens in small scale, like your web server gets popped, you kill it and spin up a new one. You haven't solved your problem. Um, so this comes back actually to that immutability ephemerality with templatization and everything. If you have a known you know, breach, you better figure out how they got in and go remediate that, you know? And even if you just realize that you could have allowed access, now you better be doing log dives and figuring out if something did get taken, you know what I mean? And so I think that's exactly right, is like, there are these elements that you get better at by, you know, doing <laughs> doing them, um, but it's, it's hard and we get that, but the more you can avoid being the, you know, the slowest camper with the bear. I actually, when I worked for US government, so I came to Amazon, I was at Amazon for over five years, but when I came, I had just come from US government, worked for all three branches doing security there. And there was one um, like head of a cyber center from a foreign country who in a briefing with us said, look, I don't think I'm gonna get rid of cyber criminals I just want them to go to the country next door. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe you just said that out loud, you know? Um, but I think on some level he was being completely fair. He was just saying, we're not gonna, and of course, ideal, someone from the FBI will listen to this and be like, yes, let's take down every last criminal and more power to you. But realistically, if you are the entity that is defending yourself, you know, making sure that you are not the most ripe target is a good way to, you know, approach some of these opportunistic, uh, you know, criminal, especially driven um, threats. And I think, you know, starting with, doing what you can. So like the idea that you're never going to be perfect, I think sometimes feels defeating, but it's just like, 
that's just a reality. Security is a journey. You're not going to be perfect. All of us who work at it still don't feel like we're good enough. You know, there's a little bit of like, it's our work is never done. Um, and that's not a bad thing. I think we just have to remind ourselves that doing it is, is, is worth the squeeze, right? Uh, so anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, awesome. D doing it's definitely worth the squeeze. I like that. Um, you know, as we start to wrap up, is there anything else you would like to share around this, uh, you know, topic of uh, you know, sort of the motivations of moving to the cloud from a security perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, so two sort of parting thoughts here, um, and thanks again for letting me chat with you and, and give a little worldview. But um, one is that staying in place is its own risk. I was listening to a good podcast recently um, on Havana syndrome, um, which is an interesting thing on its own. But um, what they found was that folks who were the least impacted were the ones who moved, literally. And there is like a phrase in military world or in, and in covert ops world, you know, and these folks were, some of them were diplomats and some were spies um, who were targeted. Um, the phrase is like, get off the X. Like if you are staying in place, then your attacker has a much easier way to target you. And so I think um, when folks think that by staying in place, they have a security strategy, like, you know, the well, I, I'm not going to move to cloud because I don't know the cloud security well enough or I don't know um, what my current environment is, you know, attached to or whatever like that. That hesitance is a security risk in itself because you're probably holding back the business, but you're also holding back your ability to take advantage of the security benefits that we've kind of highlighted here and that um, you're you're going to start. I mean, like being being risk averse security people, it also makes sense to look at a cloud migration as a um, risk averse decision. And I wanna just like reframe that for folks. Um, the second thing is that, you know, folks who are thinking about careers in security, there is no Pasco or collect $200. Um, you too can be a security person. Um, we've all taught ourselves a lot of this. I mean, some of us went to school for computer science and even those who did don't, didn't necessarily learn what they then ended up using on the job. You know, like there is no um, barrier to entry here and we need creative and different folks who have grown up in environments that make them solve problems differently. And, you know, the more of the stuff that life is made of that we can get in the room, the better we are as um, a community of security folks and as innovators, you know, writ large. So I just wanted folks to feel free to, you can find me on Twitter at, at Merit Bear and, you know, on, on the Lacework website. And I'm happy to um, be in contact with folks if it's helpful, but I just wanted to kind of give an emperor has no clothes urge to action for folks who might be thinking about careers in security. Yeah, that, I think that's great advice. Uh, and uh, if you're listening, definitely follow Merit on uh, on Twitter. Just a couple of comments there, you know, around uh, staying in place. You know, I, I think one of the things that you lose out on is that probably most of the innovation that's going to be happening in the security world moving forward, or I imagine a lot of it is going to be happening essentially in the cloud native world. But so by staying in place, you lose out on all the innovation that's happening in 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 uh, you know in, in the future essentially, and then in terms of the um, you know moving into a security role and you know someone being worried about do they have enough you know sort of technical background like I have 
too much computer science training but, uh, by most people's standards. I spent a decade in university uh, studying computer science. I mean, I had no, you don't really receive any security training as part of that. You know, I have lots of software engineering training, but I didn't explicitly get security training. It's not really part of sort of the, the, the core curriculum for most programs. So you're not really losing out if you, from a security perspective, if that's not your background. Um, it's something that I think you can definitely transition to if it's something that you're interested in. But anyway, uh, Merit, I want to thank you so much for being here. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure that the people listening will also enjoy it. And, you know, if, if you uh, enjoyed this, let Merit know. Thanks, Sean. Yes, this was a lot of fun and to be continued. Would love if folks want to post comments about next topics. You know, I'm always up for whatever you want to talk about next. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to have you back. Thank you. Cheers.